0: Gospel with Dr. Halista Elwine join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion so we're going to continue our study with the footsteps of Messiah, but we're going to incorporate some principles here from the leper, because where we're going today is the idea of this secret snowstorm that's brewing in the north. The language of the tribulation, the language of the footsteps of Messiah, it's pointing toward a coming storm. And it even pinpoints the type of storm that is coming, and it's going to be a snowstorm. Right now, whether it's a literal snowstorm or not, I have no idea. But it's been compared to a snowstorm, right? So this is the the particular verse. It, it says Leviticus fourteen two. This shall be the law of the person with leprosy on the day of his cleansing, and he shall be brought to the priest. And of course, if we have accepted Yeshua as our Messiah, and we are trying to live by his commandments, allowing his commandments to sanctify us and set us apart, then we can look forward to a a future cleansing when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. We we might not be of the world, but we're still in the world. And so we can pick up little, you know, stains here and there. But the important thing is the Spirit's working from us on the inside. And so that regeneration that is happening through the power of the Holy Spirit, there might still be some things that, that we need to sprinkle by our by our high priest before we can get into the, the holier places of the tabernacle. And so I think you're like me, I'd be like, Yeah, don't just sprinkle me, you know, just dunk me. Uh, Just like Peter, he said, don't just wash my feet, wash everything. Uh, We're willing. And then right after that, of course, the temptation came for Peter and he denied Yeshua. And so at the same time that we embrace the idea of preparation for his return, he's also cautioning us that we might be facing some tribulations, that are going to perfect and to refine us and reveal to us those places where we're falling short, where maybe our mouths get ahead of what we really are willing to do. We might be say, we might say, I'm willing to do this for the kingdom. I'm willing to do this for Yeshua. But then on the day that we're called to do it and stand on our faith unashamedly, the day that we're called to do it, when we might suffer greatly, then maybe we'll back away and say, well, I don't know what you're talking about, like Peter did. And if there's any shred of that, if there's any spot or wrinkle of that left in us, of course, the Holy Spirit wants to help bring that to light, which is what happened with Peter. So it's kind of like put your money where your mouth is. You say you want to follow Yeshua? Will you follow him through the hard times? And he will find out if you will or not. And if you fall short, what do you do? You get right back up. You repent, just like Peter did. And, you know, He denies him three times, but then Yeshua asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter affirms, you know what? I'm much more humble now when I say I'll follow you. You showed me that I was willing to say it, but then not willing to do it. And now he says, I love you. And so Yeshua says, okay, now you know what's ahead of you, but it's okay. He's going to be with us no matter what he does call us to do for him. So let's back up a little bit to last week's lesson. We've been looking at Gideon's battle because, of course, the setting of Gideon's battle is the time of Passover. How do we know this? Well, the the matzah that Gideon bakes and then uh, the the vision there of the round loaf of barley tumbling into the, the tent of the enemy. Of the Midianites and upending the tent. Of course, barley is, the first fruits of the barley is offered the Passover week. So we have a couple of markers here that are wanting us to think in terms of Passover. And at Passover, what's associated with Passover in this particular story is that he tests his warriors, those who are actively participating in the battle. And then he also tests the citizens of Israel. He goes to the elders of Sukkot, and he says, please give my men some bread and some water because they're chasing the enemy. And of course, the the elders of Sukkot said, no, uh, if the enemy is not in the palm of your hand, we're not going to help you. We're not all in. So the battle didn't just test the warriors. The battle also tested the average everyday citizen of Israel to find out if they were all in. They weren't allowed to sit back, cross their arms and wait and see who won. And that can happen in a day of battle. You don't want to risk anything. So you just kind of stand back, cross your arms and say, well, whoever wins, because I really want this person over here to win. But just in case they don't, I don't want this other side over here to come get me. So I'm not going to commit anything. That's the wrong approach. It's apathy. And so the lesson that we learned in the last couple of weeks is what does it mean to be known? When Yeshua turns some people away who have invoked his name for casting out demons, for prophesying in his name, uh, for healing in his name, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And we put that in the context of Abraham and Abraham being known and how he would pass this information of righteousness onto his children versus how Gideon came back and knew the elders of Sukkot, because they were not all in like Abraham was all in. They were disciplined with thorns and briars. They had thorns of judgment for being uncommitted, for waiting around for the sure thing, right? And the the point we want to make here is the things that they approach Yeshua with by saying, we cast out demons in your name, we heal, we prophesy, we do these miracles. And Yeshua said, I never knew you. Because the context, if you'll remember, was keeping the word. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or Torahlessness. And in some cases, you know, you might say, well, you know, if they're not keeping the Torah, does Yeshua send them away? I think here he's saying is "You, you need to be doing what you understand. Whatever you understand, you need to be all in with that. And if we're all in with that, then we we kind of open the door. He can show us more and show us more and show us more. So we're not really responsible for anyone's timeline, right? Because we were on our timeline, but we had to be faithful with what we knew at the time, especially as we see the days growing short. It's not the time to be apathetic about our faith. It's time to be 100% all in with our faith. We are in a time of battle. And so something that is important is obey the commandments you understand every day. The commandments are for everyone every day. Now, an opportunity might pop up for you to work a miracle, cast out a demon, heal someone. Those things might occur. But we know what will occur every day is the keeping of the commandments. And this everyday keeping of the commandments, this is an expression of love and wanting to know Yeshua and the fellowship of his suffering, right? It's not that these other things can't occur. They very well might. But the bread and butter of the kingdom is simply loving Yeshua and keeping his commandments. They will be righteousness for us, right? They're not our righteousness. They're Yeshua's righteousness for us, right? It's how he sanctifies us and sets us apart and prepares us for our inheritance in the garden, the garden is not for people who rebel and do their own thing. And this is why, you know, doing miracles and casting out demons is not really a prerequisite for entering the holy city. Obeying the commandments, because of your salvation in Yeshua, this is a prerequisite for entering a holy city. So, when we look at Matthew seven twenty-one through twenty-eight, and we look at that full context. He, he reminds us, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet, it did not fall, right? For it had been founded on a rock. Just file that away in the back of your mind, because we're interested in this rock that we are building on. What we don't want Is the rock to fall on us, right? There's going to be two kinds of people in Revelation those who have built on the rock and those who are begging the rocks to fall on them. And so if we hear his words and don't act on them, he says, We're foolish. We're building our house on sand. In a time of tribulation, it just simply will not stand because we didn't go all in, right? A rock is going all in. Sand just shifts around with the Whichever way the wind blows, that's not the type of believer we want to be. So we've got some feast markers as we kind of wrap up this lesson of yada, which is knowing. uh, It's a it's a familiar relationship in the positive sense, but in the negative sense, it's also discipline. So as we kind of go back into last week's lesson, we can see that there was a time of Passover when the angels go to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And actually there were five cities that were proscribed and then one was spared because Lot wanted to go to the little one. And that's incredible that somebody would be so attached to this world that they would rather go to the least wicked of five wicked cities rather than go to Abraham in the mountain, go to obedience and go into the covenant with Abraham. Because you see, it's one level of righteousness. I'm not doing the deeds of Sodom, but I so love the things of Sodom. I feel so at home in Sodom. Could I at least just go to the least wicked of these Sodomite cities? And that was Lot's choice. And of course, this occurs, this destruction occurs at the time of Pesach, because we saw Lot baking matzah. We also know right? That the story of Gideon, where he comes back and he knows the elders of Sukkot with thorns and briars, he's disciplining, right? And what precedes this thing with Lot, as before the angels even go to Sodom, they stop at Abraham's tent and say, you know what, you know what, we're not going to do this great destruction before we let Abraham know, okay? No. why? Because there is a familiar relationship with Abraham. And he says, I want Abraham to know what I'm about to do because he's linking it to Abraham's willingness, not just to do the way of righteousness, but also to teach it to his children after him, right? So that tells you that at this time of Passover, it is so important to tell our children the story. That's why it's part of the Seder you shall tell your children in that day, this is what happened to me. That's passing on the righteousness of who you are in Messiah Yeshua to the next generation. So there is going to be a revealing of destruction to the children of Abraham, seems to be the powder. And the children of Abraham are going to have an awareness of the destruction that's about to descend. Lot, even after he is told delays, he delays, he wants to hang on. He, the, the angels had to tell him, get away from the plane. Get away from where your sheep and your goats are. Get away from where your catalog. Don't look back. Don't look back to your house. Don't look back to where your money is. Don't look back to where your in-laws are. Get out. Get out of here. Hurry and get out. And, and so there's a, a sense of Passover that he is trying to hurry us along. Now, on Abraham's part, we saw a willingness to hurry. What does he do? He starts running, trying to serve hospitality to the angels. He does this all by himself. Well, Lot, he extends a hospitality up to a point. And then the thing with his daughters just got weird. I mean, I don't think anybody in any, any generation would say that's not weird. It is weird to offer your daughters in exchange for, you know, you know the story. But then to delay when you know fire and brimstone are about to fall and say, I just don't want to leave Sodom. Well, so many believers are like that. They want to have one foot with Yeshua because they desperately want to be saved from hellfire and brimstone. But on the other hand, they can't let go of the world with the other hand. On the other hand, okay. So you got to let go of the world. It doesn't mean that he won't put some things back in there. Was Abraham a wealthy man? He was. He had wonderful things in his hand, but there were certain things he had to be willing to let go of at times. At any rate, the cycle of the feasts, he's teaching us through these feasts a paradigm. He's revealing to the righteous what to expect, both in terms of salvation, redemption, sanctification, and also in terms of punishment. And destruction. So you've got two kinds of people here. You've got children of Abraham, and they are living their lives as though Abraham still lives. The children of Yeshua are living as though Yeshua still lives because they do. They do still live. But in the telling of the Passover, they put themselves into the story and saying, We're a part of the story. Until you own the story, You'll very quickly lose that identity. You'll very quickly lose that sense of citizenship. So, we've got children of Abraham at Sukkot who won't help Gideon and his army. So, they had a citizenship, they had a name. They just weren't ready to behave as though Abraham were still alive. They weren't willing to behave as though Moses were still alive. And so, many of us don't behave as though Yeshua is still alive, but he is and he's going to return. And so the feasts are given to us from from the ages, because the Father does not want us to be unaware of what he's doing. He has told us for thousands of years what he is doing and when. Now, we may not know the exact year, but we do know the timetables. We have a general expectation, but I think we can also have an expectation if we are engaging these feasts in obedience, that we can say with confidence, the Father has already revealed to us what he's about to do in any generation. We'll be sensitive to that. So let's go to this verse we've been working with, which is Song of Songs 217. It says, until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, turn, my beloved. And be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Batir. Right, so we've deconstructed what is the cool of the day, right? It's it's toward the evening when the sun is going, our perception is that the sun will be setting faster, even though it isn't. The earth is still rotating at the same rate. It's still going around the sun at the same rate of speed. But our perception, of course, is affected when the sun kind of drops on the horizon. And so that's the idea. When Messiah comes, it's going to be, in a sense, hurried along, right? If we think of the Passover and the time of the slaughtering of the Passover lamb, it's the cool of the day, right? The sun's going to start setting pretty quickly at that time of year, at the time of the, the, the slaughter, at the time of these um, sacrifices are being made. And so there's going to be uh, a turnaround in terms of the feasts, right? The world is going to turn around for the Israelites. It's going to turn in a different direction, of course, for the Egyptians. right. Another layer of turning, just kind of adding to what we've already studied in this respect. Another layer of the turning, when Messiah turns, It's thought to reference the movement between the thrones of judgment and mercy. Each day, and I'm hoping to touch on this a little bit next week at the Passover conference to kind of recap the hours of Messiah and what happened on the crucifixion day as it pertains to what is understood about these thrones on each given day. Um, But there's a movement. And it's thought that there's a certain time of day when Adonai sits on the judgment seat, on the throne of judgment. And then at a particular time, he will step down from the throne of judgment, and then he will step up and sit on the throne of mercy. Now, think about the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? Inside the tabernacle was the ark, and it was called the mercy seat, So where do you want to be judged from? The mercy seat. You want to be gathered into the tabernacle. You want to be gathered into the tent on a day of trouble. You don't want to be judged when he's sitting on the judgment seat because there's a very strict justice in place. So each day, and then particularly at the feast, the king is thought to move from the judgment seat to the mercy seat, and then he'll move back again, in it's cycle as we skip forward from Passover to the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, this is a time when it's prophesied that the Holy One is going to draw His own under the tent. He's going to bring them into the Mishkan, or the tabernacle, and there He will judge them with mercy, and there He will abide in their presence. That was the whole thing with the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was erected, the divine presence descends, which is pretty cool, right? Uh, and the idea is that the divine presence was always having to descend so that the Israelites could hear it and be in in the presence. But we know that Moses could go up into it, and only at, at, uh, I can only think of one time where the Israelites were invited to go up, right? But other than that, they just they weren't in a condition. where they could survive being drawn up into that cloud of his presence. But they could worship in the Mishkan. They could worship in the tent of meeting, and his presence would abide with them if they came with sincere hearts, right? If they tried to draw close that way. But let's go to Psalm 27. See if Psalm 27 can help point us in the right direction. Uh, for the cloud, for the tent of meeting, and how he will draw us into that tent on a day of trouble. Because see, in this cycle of the judgment seat, mercy seat, he would have to descend from the judgment seat, which is what Paul talks about. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the teruah. It's a shofar call. Blessed is he who knows. Blessed is the people who know. They're familiar with, they're in a love relationship with the sound of the torua, but it's also the sound of battle, right? So that with his enemies, it's a, it's like a signal, the battle's starting. But at the same time, then he steps up, he ascends with a shout, with the torua. What happens at that point, he draws his own up into the cloud with him, something that's very rare. Usually it's the presence having to descend to step down. This time, the presence in the cloud will draw the people up with him. And so there he sits on the throne of mercy. And of course, we're going to shout with the teruah, right? That's where we're going to be happy. Happy Happier, the people who know the sound of the teruah, because now we're concealed in his tent. So Psalm 27, 5 and 6, that's the text we want to work with to help us understand. What is the role of the feasts in our concealment in a day of trouble? It says, for on the day of trouble, or it's literally the day of evil, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. That word there is sukkah, sukkah, right? So sukkot, it was the men of sukkot who were known with thorns and briars because they weren't all in. is, Sukkot is the bookend to Passover, Passover Sukkot. So he will conceal me in his Sukkah. He will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He will lift me up on a rock. Remember what Yeshua said about building your house on a rock? Basically, you build your house on the rock, and when that day comes, you will find that he will lift you up on that rock. And it says, now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me, and I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts, shouts to ruah of joy. You you will turn into a a huge shofar. (laughs) I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So your enemies are going to surround you, It's probably going to feel as though you were surrounded by enemies because there's precedent for that in scripture, right? Remember Elisha's servant? He was scared because he thought they were surrounded by the enemy. And then Elisha says, open his eyes so he can see. And then he can see the chariots of Israel and its horsemen who have actually surrounded the enemy. He thought he was surrounded by the enemy, and then the enemy was surrounded. And he will open our eyes to this understanding. We will be able to see in that realm rather than just being given a little glimpse, now we will fully understand what the feasts have been for us, what our obedience to the commandments have been to us. We have built our house upon a rock, and now we won't be begging the rocks in the mountains to fall on us and conceal us from his presence. That's going to be for the, the, the elders of Sukkot, Remember, uh, there were 77 elders of Sukkot. That spells eyes in Hebrew, which means goats. Yeshua says, I want to separate the sheep from the goats. You're either all in or you aren't. And if you're not all in, you're going to know you should have been in. This is probably way more terrifying to the lukewarm than it would be to the totally wicked. The totally wicked would expect this battle and expect the worst. They've chosen that state of rebellion. But remember, Yeshua said, I wish that you were hot or cold, because this is going to be painful. While you're you're enduring the punishment, that other part of your brain, that other the Holy Spirit that was talking to you this whole time, telling you to obey the commandments, to seek that relationship with Yeshua, to seek after the Father, to seek that Abrahamic familiarity with him, it was whispering in your ear all along, and you just weren't all in. You just wanted to wait till the end of the days and and get a little free ride, maybe get a little reward, you know. You just basically just didn't, like, load. you didn't want to go down with the fire and the brimstone. But after that, there's just not much there. You didn't build anything. And he says, this is going to be a terrifying experience, because they will know what they should have done. And they're not going to be able to stand in the presence. They'll run from that presence because the weight of what they have done. By being apathetic, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring them to a state of terror. They're going to say to the mountains and to the rocks, "Fallen us. They're going to try to hide in caves. All this was prophesied. Just kind of go back and review our lessons. The cool of the day. Remember, we're working with uh, Song of Songs 217. It says, until the cool of the yafuach. Of the day, it's kind of a sound alike with ruach, which is spirit. But yafuach, it is kind of an equivalent expression to ruach. But it doesn't say until the the spirit of the day. It says until the yafuach of the day, and it's yes, it means a blowing, a breathing, a cooling. But it has a little nuance of meaning that ruach doesn't have. It means to hasten, to hurry. It means to set a flame and to speak and to utter. So when it says until the Yafuach of the day, it's suggesting that Adonai is going to be blowing to heat up the furnace of refinement, that judgment is going to follow once he heats up the furnace. I don't know if you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they he- heated up that furnace seven times. But in the end, it was going to be the king who was judged not those who obeyed the word. but the the rabbis say that this particular prophecy in 217 is a signal that when this this day turns, when Messiah turns on the mountain in the cool of the day, the day of destruction, but also the the day that he lifts up our heads. remember the, the story of the baker and the cupbearer, one got his head lifted up in a bad way. One got his head lifted up in a good way. He was restored to his position to serve the king. Well, they say this particular prophecy is signaling the end of the exile for Israel, the end of the exile for those who love him, that it will begin the the process of their lifting back up into the garden. Now, will this happen immediately or will it happen later at the Feast of Trumpets? I don't know exactly. There's all sorts of ideas about it. But the implication is that this particular journey begins at Passover. And as you journey through this seven months between Passover and Sukkot, there is an elevation that's occurring with every step, which that's good news, because it's hard to take more than one step at a time, right? So uh, it may be that we begin this journey. That's why we have our sandals on our feet. We have our belt on. We eat the Passover in a hurry. Because remember, you know, Yeshua says, unless those days were shortened, for the sake of the elect. It talks about hurrying the days. Come quickly. If he comes quickly, that means he's coming faster than what was scheduled. So there's all sorts of clues about the shortening of the time for the sake of the elect. And so when you're ready to hurry out at Pesach, you're saying, I get this. I want him to hurry the time, right? I want him to come quickly, which means I am going to quickly go to him. I'll be quick to obey his commandments because I believe that he can shorten this time for me, whether it's only through perception, that it'll seem as nothing, kind of like Jacob. It seemed like nothing to work 14 years for his beloved, or whether he's literally going to chiastically sandwich Sukkot in the Passover. Could he do that? He could. I don't understand how time works in in that realm. It could happen, right? So let's, let's kind of go back to our verse here. Let me back up so you can see it. For on the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. He will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He'll lift me up on a rock, All right. There's a doubled Hebrew verb there, all right? Uh, or the shoresh, which is the root, all right? And so it's, he's going to make a verb and a noun out of this one shoresh, this one Hebrew root. And the root is sitar, sitar. And you can read in there, rainy and beseter. And so I tried to translate it out more literally so you could hear that East Iranian beseter in a better context. When you do that, it says, he will secret me in a secret. He will hide me in the secret place. More literally, because it's doubled, he will secret me in a secret. Now, if we look at Queen Esther, hear the sitar in Esther and her Persian name. But remember, her Hebrew name was Hadassah. Hadassah is the myrtle branch that goes in the lulav at Sukkot. There's a secret here, and it's not just in Esther; it's also in Hadassah. That Sukkot is part of her concealment in the day of trouble. That the king is going to rescue her in a day of trouble, and that's the secret of the the scroll of Esther. It doesn't even use the name Yehovah. In the entire scroll, but you know he's there every step of the way, saving his people. And in fact, if you haven't had a chance to get the Becky book, I can't even call the title right now, it'll come to me in a sec, or somebody will type it in the chat box for you. Uh, Mysteries Behind the Mask, right? Esther Mysteries Behind the Mask. Uh, It tells the whole story of Joseph in the scroll of Esther. And so we pull that out so you can see the story of Joseph. And what does Joseph's name mean? It comes from the Hebrew root Asaf. Asaf is another name for the feast of Sukkot. So we've got two orphans, Joseph and Esther. And the story of Sukkot is proclaimed by their names. There's a secret. He secrets in them the secret. And in fact, within the scroll of Esther, you won't just find the story of Joseph. You'll find emphasis on all the feasts, but especially the fall feasts in the and the symbolism. You'll get the symbolism of the feast of trumpets. Uh, the, the emphasis of trumpets in the liturgy is going to always be kingship, throne and the king's decrees. It doesn't really emphasize repentance that much. Um, It's just understood that you've got 10 days from then to get the repentance right before the gates close at Yom Kippur. And then once the gates close at Yom Kippur, the decrees will be sealed. And then we see Queen Esther going into the king's inner chamber, and she doesn't know if she'll live or die. Kind of like the high priest going into the holy of holies, he's hoping he did everything right so that he will receive favor and that he will not die in the king's presence. So the the feasts, if we were to study these out individually, we're just kind of hitting a highlight here. You can see that the feasts are a secret hiding place, but they are one hundred percent knowable. You, they're not a secret from you. They are a secret. For you. If you're not willing to seek the Holy One, then they become a secret from you. But if you are seeking the Holy One, then they are a secret for you. He will secret you in the secret. And the more you learn about the feasts, the more you're learning about the nature of your Savior, your Redeemer, your Sanctifier, right? The one who's going to lift up your head. That's the good news. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Remember that scripture? The feasts are part of the good news. So he can secret you in the secret. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, the when Esther calls the fast for her maidens and then tells Mordecai, tell the Jews also to fast and to pray, she calls this fast during the time of Passover. You say, well, what is it emphasizing here, Passover or the fall feast? Yes, exactly. Yes, he wants to secret you in the secret. And the secret is within these feasts. If you understand them, then you're on the secret. Now, I want to point out something else here about being secreted in the secret or the secret secret. Being your hiding place. There's a little kind of play on words. If he's going to secret me in the secret, in his sukkah, on the day of evil, then there's another clue to be found here. It it starts at the beginning of the verse in Hebrew, uh, which is the use of the word uh, safon. Safon. It means north, but it also means to hide. Right? Do you see the emphasis here on the hiding just in this one verse? And so as we look at the kind of play on word within the verse in Hebrew, it's telling us that my north, my north, it's a fun Itsfeneni uh, in Hebrew, my north in a sukkah on a day of evil, he will secret me in the secret right? So is there anywhere, and by the way, north, yes, it does mean hidden, and this is how the play on word works. When you hear north, you have to know the context, because it might be saying hidden, and this is what the rabbis say of Messiah. They say Messiah is hidden in the north, And, and they're deriving that from scriptures we don't have time to go through, Uh, But you can see how Messiah would be associated with the north in this verse and how he would be the one to secret us in the secret. Matthew 6, if you will read that whole chapter, I'm not going to read it to you, but if you will take the time to read all of Matthew 6, you will see that he is referring to himself and his association with the father as part of the secret. Because he keeps emphasizing the father who is in secret the father who is in secret, right? And you'll realize it's almost like Matthew 6 is a commentary on the scroll of Esther. I'm just gonna read you a little bit of this from Matthew 6, 6, and then verses 17 and 18. He says, but as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. What did Esther do? She took her closest maidens And told the Jews to do the same. And what did they do? Before she goes before the king and says a word about it, they pray and they fast in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But as for you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by people, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So you see, when Queen Esther went before the king, she didn't go in there looking like she'd been fasting and praying for three days. No, she went in there looking like, how do they say down south? Like she just stepped out of a bandbox, whatever that means. She looked good when she came out of that secret and she gets favor, right? Uh, but it's in Matthew 6 that Yeshua inserts the disciples' prayer. And this particular prayer is important because he has, I don't want to say tailored it, but he has definitely dropped it into our lives because he knows it fits this particular day of trouble that's coming. Remember, we want to be drawn up into the clouds at the terua. Right, so that we can be judged before the mercy seat. We don't want to experience the day of evil with our enemies below us. So, Yeshua says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil, deliver us from that evil day. So as we compare what we know about these feasts, and we match it against what Yeshua is teaching us in this secret chapter, we see that the kingdom and repentance are the two main themes of Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Fall Feasts. Yeshua emphasizes emphasizes this in the disciples' prayer. It emphasizes uh, the throne, right? The kingship and the fall feast with the Feast of Trumpets. That's what Yeshua emphasizes in the disciples' prayer. Your kingdom come, right? Forgive us our debts. We also forgive our debtors. Once the Israelites were gathered into the Sukkot of glory, the natural bread runs out. And what do they start receiving? daily bread. They start receiving daily manna. And if you didn't complain about it, it was all good. So he's trying to condition us. He's trying to prepare our spirits for a day when we are gathered into the cloud. And we're only going to receive our daily bread so that we'll be okay with that, where we don't need 10 tons of food in our pantries. We'll say, fine, if he gives me my daily bread, I'm good with that. I'm ready for that. I'm prepared for that. And then, of course, this final request, he's saying, deliver us from the evil day. We want into the cloud. Those who won't repent, they're not gathered into the cloud. (laughs) They're, They're waiting for judgment from the judgment seat instead of the mercy seat. They're waiting for him to know them with thorns and briars, not the type of knowing. That we associate with Abraham or with knowing Yeshua and loving His commandments and building on that rock. Let's look at another description of the north. Uh, Safon, remember in Hebrew, Safon, Psalm forty-eight two through three. It describes Mount Zion, and I wanted to clear something up because sometimes the English translation doesn't help us understand. Um, because sometimes the translators may not have known the context, and that's why I guess there's so many translations out there, but this says beautiful in elevation. Where is this? This Mount Zion is elevated, right? Now, if natural Mount Zion is is a hill, but Mount Zion above is a place beautiful in elevation, because Zion in Hebrew, Zion is actually a not a good pronunciation. It, it leads you in a whole different direction that has nothing to do with what you're trying to say. Sion, Sion, instead of Mount Zion. Heart Sion. So Sion, it means something dry and something parched, right? That, that most likely describes the natural Mount Sion. But he says, this Sion is beautiful. It's, an, it's a level above the natural world. It's mirroring this parched earth below, but just above that parched earth of Mount Zion, there is the mount the mountain above, and this is beautiful in elevation. It says it's the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, and its palaces. God has made Himself known as a stronghold. (coughs) Excuse me. So, the far north is what the English translation is telling us is the location of Mount Sion. Before we get into, well, let's just go ahead and place it. The far north, it's more accurate to say the hindmost part of the north, right? Like the back of the tabernacle, that's the same word. This part of the north would actually be the, the hindmost. Now, if we think of the The camp of Dan, with his tribes, he and two other tribes, they, they camped on the north. And at least in the wilderness, they would have faced north in order to see any approaching enemy that might be coming from the north. And so the backside of their camp would have been the tabernacle. So if that helps you understand the far north, where is Mount Zion? It's the back of the north, right? So north is actually, you, you keep going from there, that is north. Messiah is said to be concealed in the north. If we look in the book of Revelation, think of the tribes being assigned to the gates of Jerusalem to judge the nation. So as the nations come in, what are they doing? They're facing in that direction in order to greet those nations coming in. So Don and his encampment are encamped on the north Side, which is the hindmost part of the north. Now, the the palace of Messiah is thought to be located in the Garden of Eden, just above Mount Zion. Right? It's in a realm that's right there. You just can't see it. Right? He has to open your eyes spiritually for you to be able to see into that realm. Yeshua could come and go as as he wished. Right? He went in and out. <laughs> you go anywhere you wanted to, at any time you wanted to, apparently. But at any rate, this is where the palace of Messiah is thought to be. And so the psalm says, in it's palaces, that there are palaces of Zion, where God has made himself known as a stronghold. So what is space in that realm? Not the same as what we understand, for sure, right? So let's look. What is a palace? Armon in Hebrew, armon. You can see a two-letter root, shoresh, which is ram, ram. And it means something elevated and something high. And sometimes it'll create wordplay, like uh, the Pharaoh Ramses. Ramses. Well, ram is high and elevated, and sus is a horse. And what did Ramses chase the Israelites with? His horses. So, Ramses, you can... See, the word play there is basically it means high horse. The people of Aram or the nation of Aram, it means an exalted people or the people of the palace. Remember, Armon is the palace or a castle, you know, if you want to go medieval. Then there's another word that's important. Hermon, Hermon, that's an elevated mountain. And you can hear the Ram in each of those words. They all mean something high. And strong and secure. So Elohim made himself known, the verse told us, no da, that's another use of knowing, in Sion's palaces, made himself known to whom? His own. It's again pointing us to that place where Yeshua says, Depart from me, I never knew you. But then he shifts and he says, If you want to know me, keep the commandments, obey the commandments. And if we obey him because we love him, then he can admit us into those truly high places. Pharaoh's high horse is not a truly high place. The Arameans were not a truly high people. A, a natural Armon is not a, a castle that is higher than any other place. Right? The natural Hermon—it's an elevated mountain, but it's—it's it's not as elevated. As the palace of Messiah or the palaces of Zion. There's more than one palace. So Yeshua wants to admit us to the truly high place, the kingdom of heaven. Now we've got the branches of the Tamar, and a Tamar is a palm tree. And the Tamar, it composes what's called the spine of the Lula. When you celebrate the Feast of Sukkot, you put together these branches of certain trees like the Hadassah, that was Queen Esther's name. And then the the lulav has a kind of a spine, and it's this big, long palm branch that hasn't opened up yet. So it kind of makes a spine. It looks like a spine. And you also use the palm branches to cover the sukkah. So Yeshua, if we look again, as, as we're pairing these two things, at Passover, they greeted Yeshua with palm branches. You say, wait a minute, palm branches aren't until Sukkot. Right. But the palm branch also represents the righteous trees of righteousness. And so it's almost as if the righteous ones of Jerusalem who recognized who he was, they're saying, Hoshiana, save us, which is part of the Passover Haggadah. They're they're taking this phrase, Hoshiana, from the Passover Hagadah. But they're also taking palm branches and and throwing before him as if he's the king coming in at Sukkot. This gives us another little hint as to how they're trying to hurry the time. They say, hey, wait a minute. We know you. We know who you are. Lots of history is going to have to play out, obviously, before that can occur. But at least we see the prophecy. So Mount Hermon and some traditions. Let's go back to this high mountain. Mount Hermon, in some traditions, is the location of the Mount of Transfiguration. The question is, was Mount Hermon one of these palaces of Messiah? Because we know Yeshua takes them up to the Mount of Transfiguration, All right, Is this one of the palaces of Zion? Does the Garden of Eden stretch far beyond in this realm just that little space above the Temple Mount, and I believe it does. I believe it stretches all the way to the natural borders from the Euphrates to the Brook of Egypt. Now, how do we compare spiritual space to natural space? I don't know, but I think somehow that's true. That's why the the parallels are put there. But the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, and and it may or may not be Mount Hermon, but we're going to look at some reasons maybe it could be. Maybe they realize they've been shown one of these palaces of Zion where he will make himself known. And for that reason, maybe they thought they should build Sukkot. Remember, they saw Moses, Elijah, and then Yeshua. And then Moses and Elijah fade away and it's just Yeshua. And they say, How about we build three Sukkot? But this can connect Hermon as one of the palaces to the gathering into Sukkot of glory. Remember, the Israelites entered into Sukkot of glory or clouds of glory when they left Egypt. Their first stop there was Sukkot. They entered into the cloud and they walked in the cloud until they crossed into the promised land. And so if Messiah returns from the north, that is from the hidden palace, what did he do on that mountain? He made himself known to them. He revealed himself to them. And then you hear this voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And what's incredible about Mount Hermon, it's going to be the one location in Israel that dependably produces snow. It's It's the place in Israel where you can go snow skiing in the winter. Not that I'm volunteering to do that. What may have been happening here? Maybe Yeshua was showing them his hiding place. That he knew there was a coming exile, another exile, and he wanted to reveal to them his palace or one of his palaces, a place with storehouses of snow for this coming day of judgment for the nations. Now, does this mean there's literally a palace on Mount Hermon? I don't know. But what he could be showing them on Mount Hermon, this high mountain, was the snow itself because the snow is a symbol of judgment, not just of purity. For the righteous, it's purity. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But for the wicked, it represents judgment. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. On this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.